the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. No, 69. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I was found in jail all night long, crying, who shall deliver for me? The jailer came and he locked the gate. All night long, jailer came and he locked the gate. All night long, the jailer came and he locked the gate. All night long, crying, who shall deliver for me? That old jail just reeled and rocked. All night long, that old jail just reeled and rocked. All night long, that old jail just reeled and rocked. All night long crying, who shall deliver for me? Paul and Silas found in jail, all night long. Paul and Silas found in jail, all night long. Paul and Silas found in jail, all night long crying, who shall deliver for me? The Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, all night long, the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, all night long, the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, all night long, crying, who shall deliver for me? Paul and Silas bound in jail, all night long, Paul and Silas bound in jail, all night long, Paul and Silas bound in jail. All night long, crying, who shall deliver for me? Crying, who shall deliver for me? Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. And in studio with me today is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, he's saying you need to speak louder. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. And let's see if we can get that corrected. We're not getting volume on that. Pardon us. We're in the studio downtown. And we're trying to get everything to work right. We're trusting Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. No, I'm not getting anything. You know what, Alexandra? Just come on around here and join me at my mic. Come right around. Come on. Why don't you introduce Jeff King? Jeff King is with us today. He is the president and has an incredible magazine on persecution. The Underground Pastors, International Christian Concern. And Jeff, welcome. Thank you so much. It's just a pleasure to be here with you guys. 
Sometimes uh, live radio is like this. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> That's no problem. It's all working out. But you know what? As we start today, uh, we don't want to start casual, and we're not going to let all the technical difficulties block us. Mm-mm. Instead, we want to talk about Jesus, and we want to talk about what it means to be a Christian, mm. and we are utterly committed to talk about the very guts and heart of what it means to be persecuted and lay your life down for Jesus. Mm. So I'm going to ask you, would you pray? Absolutely, Father. We call on you, Lord God. We always want to be about your business, Father. And any time that you're not at the center is wasted, so we ask you to come into the center right now. And you speak to people. You Speak through us. We offer ourselves up, Lord. We can just give you the little few loaves and fishes we have and say you multiply it and make an abundance for your people, Father. And uh, uh, just come in Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we do pray. And I thank you for the work that Jeff is doing. And I ask, Almighty God, that your Holy Spirit would empower this sharing time. Lord, this isn't an interview. This is a sharing time among three Christians who are sold out to serve you. So, Lord, would you come now in power? Lord, thank you. Yes. You know, when I think about persecution, I think of the Roman days, Mm. the early Christian church. Absolutely, yeah. What's persecution look like today? Yeah. You know, whenever I answer that question, I always want to kind of give a little background so people get the context of what's happened. But... You know, most people, if, if they are familiar with modern persecution, they think even of, uh, you know, the communist era. Yes. So it was the communist era where, you know, they, they were very intent on crushing Christianity around the world. And so in China and Russia and Cuba, Vietnam, et cetera. So all those places, it's still going on, but it's, or most of those places is still going on, but it's a lot better place. And uh, most of those places are moving in the right direction. So the big thing that's happened is that, you know, back in the 70s, there was the oil crisis, and the wealth of the world flowed into the Middle East. And with that, you know, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states started using that money, and they were very open with this. They they built uh, radical churches, mosques, madrasas, which are boarding schools, uh, and as well as terror movements uh, and political movements, all uh, theological movements all around the world. <clears throat> and so... Most people have seen the fruit of that in the rise of terrorism. But that's also happened. That same thing is happening in the Christian world, in the persecuted world. So when you see the Middle East, when you see what's happened in Iraq with the, the rise of ISIS, the rise of al-Shabaab in Africa, the rise of Boko Haram, these are all movements. If you're familiar with these names, these are all movements. And they're all really the same thing. They're radical Islamist movements that are using force uh, to push out Christianity, to crush Christianity, and install Islam. So that's the background of what's going on today. So I mentioned ISIS. You saw ISIS, and uh, I think most people have become familiar with them. And that, you know, the, the rise of ISIS really made the average Christian much more aware of what was going on with persecution and then with Boko Haram. So today, I would say, you know, persecution, look at, that's me, sorry, uh, look at Nigeria. Now, Nigeria, since around the turn of the century, since around 2000, uh, there have probably been, no one knows for sure, but the number is somewhere between 30,000 and 70,000 Christians murdered. I mean brutally murdered. They come into villages, they shoot them up, they use machetes, and they drive them off the land. And it's, it's you know, um, it's very intentional. And they've driven so many of the Christians out of the north and out of the middle belt into either the middle or the, the southern part of Nigeria. 
And no one, most people don't know that. That's Nigeria. That's, that's, that surpasses the Middle East in terms of a killing ground of Christians. But is it still centered around Islam? It absolutely is, yeah. No, it's, it's about taking territory for Islam. And this is actually Islam's history. A lot of people don't know this. If you, know, if you listen to the government, you know, Islam is a religion of peace, right? But that's, that's really a gambit. It's really a, a State Department intelligence gambit because you can't hit Islam head on. If the government does that, the problem gets worse. And so they're trying to divide the radicals from the moderates, but it doesn't work. We're up against, you know, the Saudis and the Gulf states. The Saudis alone, at the turn of the century, they had spent $100 billion building radical mosques, madrasas, etc., all over the world. And so whatever we can do, it's a drop in the bucket. It's like you're trying to push back the ocean, you know, with a bucket. And uh, and so plus the the radicalism is built into the books. It's it came from Muhammad. It's in the books, and so each fresh generation of Muslims is going to look to that, and a certain number of them will be fundamentalists. Now we're fundamentalists. What do we do? We say we want to obey our, the law. What's what's been given down as direction. So Muhammad was a very violent individual. He was a warlord, and all his life was encoded into the books. And and. So that's in the books. It's always there. The violence is always there. Islam means submission. You bring the world into submission to Allah. Now, we want to bring the world into submission to Jesus, but we don't use a sword. We use love. We'll lay down our lives. They'll lay down our lives and use the sword. And that's very that's been from the beginning, and that's going on today, and it never stops. So would you say that most of the persecution that Christians fight today, they face today is from the Islamists? That's the big rise. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. So it used to be the communist area. It's really, it's really switched to Islam. Now, it's not, it's not, that's not the only story. You know, an interesting thing is you look at India. In, there's a huge rise in persecution in India, but that's yes, because... among the Hindus. That's right. Now, and it's radical Hindus. And Modi, the leader of India, is a radical Hindu himself, and he, he heads up a radical Hindu party. And so that's been unleashed in India. So it's not the only story, but it's the main story. And what does the daily life look like for a Christian who is living, say, in Nigeria, as you mentioned? Well, it depends where they live. But if they live in the middle or the north belt of the country, they're living a, a life on the edge. They're living, if they're out in a village somewhere, they're living a life of fear. Because at any night or any day, the radicals with guns, and that could be Boko Haram or that could be the Fulanis, which are just, they all are radical Muslims with guns. So it really doesn't matter what group it is. But they'll come in and, and terrorize the village and shoot them up and drive them out and machete them to death. So you're always wondering when that's going to happen. Yeah, that's just the reality of it. You know, I, I see the horror of that. But what part does the United States government play in funding, say, ISIS? <laughs> Don't we have blood on our hands as Americans? Well, that's a that's a good question, and uh, you know, if if I was to sit here and tell you what I think, I would say ISIS is just like you know the Mujahideen used to be in Afghanistan. It's the same gambit. So we're funding the radicals, and uh, uh, they are we're using them to take down Syria and Assad and break up the triangle between Iran and Russia and Assad. And so they're a tool, and we'll deal with them later. But in the meantime, we're trying to take out regimes. So unfortunately, uh, we do have blood on our hands. And I'm answering probably on a different level. You were probably looking at the Iraq thing alone, but that's the answer. Not just Iraq. It's Afghanistan. It's in a number of areas. Yes. So, yeah, I would say say we're uh, absolutely part of that. You know, one thing, and this is upsetting to a lot of people because it breaks your worldview. And anytime your worldview breaks, this is upsetting to people. But how many, you think a few years back, how many pictures or videos did you see of, of Raqqa 
the headquarters of ISIS, and they would lay out. You know, you go to Newsweek or whatever. Here's their Ministry of Information. Here's their headquarters. Here's the, why were these places never bombed? Mm-hmm. They were never bombed because we were allowing them to go on and funding them and funding them. And then the arms are flowing through Turkey. Oil sales are oil's coming back out for sale. We were allowing this all to happen, and unfortunately, Russia came in and upset our game. So, yeah. So, what's your part in all of this? I'm not. I'm not responsible for any of it. <laughs> <laughs> but what are you doing? Yes. Well, what are we doing? What's your actual work? Okay. So, what we do when we help persecuted Christians, it revolves around three different areas, and that's advocacy, awareness, and assistance. And so the awareness is we do things like this. We put out the magazine, uh, Persecution. You know, we're on the website, persecution.org, but we're trying to educate the church because, as you know, a lot of the church is asleep. They don't know what's happening to their brother and sister. And so we try every day by posting news about what's happening and say, hey, church, wake up. Look what's happening to your brother and sister. What does the Lord call us to do? The second thing is we work, you know, being in Washington, D.C., we work on Capitol Hill and the State Department. So we work with senators and congressmen and State Department, sometimes the White House. And we're trying to push back countries to persecute or get people out of prison. So there's awareness, there's advocacy. The assistance thing, it really depends on the country. But we're doing our bread and butter work is people are being killed. Christian workers, pastors are being killed all the time. And we take care of their families. So we we position them to get them into a new life. And so we put the kids in Christian school. We put them into a new home. And we give them some small business they can run and carry on with a new life and fix what part of their life can be fixed. The other things we do, we smuggle Bibles. We've we've done everything. We've uh, created a 24-7 uh, satellite TV channel and beamed it into one of the toughest countries uh, that's very confrontational with the dominant religion there. And uh, But it really all depends on the country and what the opportunities are and what we can do. And But, you know, we, we want to bandage. We're always bandaging. That work never stops. So the victims come, and we need to bandage them up. But we also build. And we like to build on the front lines of the church, the most dangerous places where people are falling, where the soldiers are falling, and that's where we want to be and where we want to work. And how do you build on that front line? Yeah, so there's any number of ways we can send out underground pastors into those areas. What do you mean, underground pastors? Yeah, and I use that term loosely because they're truly not all underground. But when we say that, what I'm talking about is, is places where if you're known as an evangelist, if you're spreading the faith, you'll get killed. So the, the regular church, the missionaries, have a very hard time going there. Western missionary is fairly ineffective there. And the regulars, the, you know, the, the people that are from the country, have to be careful. But if you're from the country, you know much more how to operate, how to talk to people. You can get in. You, you know their voice. You know what they need to hear. And so we'll fund those guys going out to spread the gospel. Uh, we also work on the back end. So a lot of times there's a covering maybe of satellite TV from us or from others that are beaming the gospel in. Now, people respond to that, and they say, hey, I'm interested. I want to get a Bible, or I want to be discipled. And so we'll work on the back end, and, and very carefully, because uh, people are, the bad guys are always trying to figure out who you are and to kill those guys. And so we'll work on the back end and follow those guys up and uh, give them Bibles and disciple them. Uh, we spread Bibles. Uh, like I said, we've done satellite, uh, any kind of work like that, and, and more. Off-the-wall question. In our neighborhood, Islamists just bought a Presbyterian church. Yeah. $7 million. Sure. Right next to their large community center. Mm-hmm. Next to the mosque. Yeah. Well, I see in America radical Islamists yeah. free to teach their theology, and I see thousands of Muslims going to those places. Are we going to see persecution in America? 
Well, I think we've already seen attacks, first of all, right? Mm-hmm. Now, and in something, it's 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 a nuanced subject because I'll be the first to say, and you'd be the first to say, hey, a lot of these Muslims are peaceful. They truly are. Absolutely. And yet there are radical mosques. Now, here's something that most people don't know. 90% of the mosques in the United States are funded by the Saudis. Yes. Oh, I they're, did not know that. Yes. They're owned by an organization that's owned and controlled by the Saudis. And they're doing, when you see mosques popping up all over the country, that takes a lot of money to buy $7 million buildings or to build you know, $20 million new buildings. Mm-hmm. And it's happening everywhere. It's not just happening here. It's happening all over the world. That's oil money coming back. So every time you fill up your tank, you're putting money into mm. the hands of the Saudis to return and do this kind of thing. So, um, no, we've already seen it. So some of these mosques are radical. They're radicalized, and, you know, they're discipling people. And at the same time, you know, from overseas, they're getting messaging from ISIS and other groups to say, go do attacks. But we've seen these attacks, and, you know, that, that will grow. That comes with Islam, and Islam will follow the model of what – uh, what Muhammad did in Saudi Arabia, where he was peaceful as long as he didn't have power. And as soon as he got power, he was violent, and then he spread that violent, uh, violence outside of Saudi Arabia or died in the movement, resulting in the deaths of millions and millions and millions of people. Let's ask about the book. You've just finished a book, right? Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about it. <laughs> so um, the book is, on the surface, it's, it's about martyrs. And, of course... Um, you know, we see a lot of martyrs. We deal with a lot of martyrs. And uh, what I say in this book is that I think for a long time they were uh, whispering a message to me, and I couldn't make it out. Um, but it's a message about what it really means to be a Christian. I think part of what I always say to people is, here's what the persecuted church has done with me. I, you know, I look at these guys, and I say it's like a mirror held up to your face. And you say, now, if that's a Christian, then what am I? And, you know, because I, like you and everybody else, we fall so short. We know what we're capable of with the Lord or what we should be, and we often fall so short. And so what you see often with the persecuted is you see uh, a church operating at a very high level of devotion and at very high cost. And so, um, you know, I start this book, and I say, you know, I introduce you to this martyr that I knew personally, and um, he always told me he was going to be killed. And uh, so every time I saw him, you know, this would come up. And at first I wasn't sure how to take it. And then I saw, no, it's sincere and it is going to happen. And, um, and then there was also, I had a friend die and she, she died after faithful uh, life in the Lord. And I was with her, you know, the last couple of days and with her husband and some others. And we were singing. She was unconscious in her living room in, in a bed. And we were singing over her and praising God. And, you know, it's the... Um, the righteous death and the person who dies faithfully and with, with joy in the Lord because they know where they're going, that's a testament. And that's what happens to the martyr. And guys, here's something to think about. So it's like, this is what, it took me a while to see this, but most of these martyrs, they have a choice to live and they don't. They allow themselves to be killed. And so then you have to ask yourself, why? And so that's kind of where it started. It's like, why are these guys dying? And, you know, when I talk about martyrs, most people, their reaction is, oh, my gosh, would I have the courage to be faithful to the end? And what I say is, hey, that's the wrong question. That's, that's something, especially as guys, I think we go to, courageous act to stand up, to be valiant, you know, all those things, strength, courage. But the real question is, can I live like the martyr? And there's something that happens to the martyr. There's something that happens 
with persecution. And I'll tell you a little story that may illustrate it. I use this in the book. So I've been to any number of churches around the country, any number of, of countries where the church really stands out, and Cuba is one of these places. And it's you, you can walk into some of these places, guys, and it's like you walk through a door, and there's some secret film, some level you've crossed over into, and the Holy Spirit is there, and the presence of God is there so powerfully. And when you feel that, you know what it is, and it, it hits you so hard. And most of the time, we're not experiencing that in the States. And so that's what's out there. Could you share a particular story of one of these martyrs you met that would kind of illustrate how you came to these conclusions? Yeah. Well, okay, let me me finish with that, and let me grab a story for you. So so, so, so many of these churches are so vibrant, you know, and that's what's out there, and yet we don't have that. And so in Cuba, let me tell you the backstory on that. So, you know... um, the church there, I would say, was probably nothing special years ago. And the great answer was Fidel Castro. That's what moved the church forward. And Fidel Castro came in, and he told the pastors, and he told the Christians, I'm your friend. You don't have to worry about me. And uh, I'm no threat to you. Don't worry. And he came in. What did he do? He imprisoned, he killed, and tortured. And so many people, so many Christians, so many pastors left. And what happens with persecution is it cleans out those who aren't serious. And, you know, most people say, you know what, I need to get a better line of work that's less dangerous and where I can live. And uh, so a lot of the church left. A lot of the church went underground. And the ones that were left were the ones that said, you know, like the disciples, where can I go? You have the words of eternal life. And so they weren't the most dynamic. They were the most faithful and the most in love with Jesus. And so those people prayed and worked and prayed and worked for about 30 years. And after about 30 years, uh, I may have my dates wrong, so give me a, I'll take this with a grain of salt. Um, but I think it was around uh, 1990 that revival hit in Cuba. Mm. And I mean, like nobody's business, to the point where you have to have been in these house churches. They're little, they're part of somebody's house. A little, Their house is tiny. This is half their house. Little ramshackle wooden pews that would break if my big backside sat in any of them. <laughs> And, you know, they're just so shabby, and yet the power of God is there. And this is what came over the church there, to the point where people were lining up around the block to get in these little places, and they had to hand out tickets, because you, and you had a time limit. You could only stay in for so long, and then you have to go, because so, there's so many people wanted to come and find God. And the communists would come, and, and uh, they'd say, you know, we've totally messed things up, and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to find God. Show me. And at the same time, the government's persecuted them heavily, and they, you know, they were very threatened because this is a mass movement. So at the end of that, let me just give you a stat that sums that up. So around 1990, the Assembly of God had about 15,000 people in Cuba. And then about 10, 15 years later, they had 350,000. Wow. Wow. So that's revival. That's a revival. That's what happens. So this is kind of what happens in persecution. But it comes, if you think about the individual, what's happening to the individual when they go through imprisonment or torture? And they go through that same transaction, and they say, I've either got to fold, I've got to get a better line of work, I've got to fold, or I'm going all in. And when I go all in, there's something that happens where you take all those things, you find out you have a whole bunch of idols in your life. And what are the idols? You know, their career, relationship, money, finance, whatever your thing is. Everyone's got tons of them. But they're all idols. And idols anything you live for, anything you try to live through. And he, that person in heavy persecution has to throw those overboard and what happened is they said and what happens is they say you know nothing nothing can help me 
and there's only one thing, and it's Jesus. And I'm going all in with him, and I, the heck with the world. I have to have Jesus. And, and that's what, so when the killer comes, when the assassin comes to the martyr and says, puts a gun to their head and says, I can let you live, he says, no, I'm, I'm about to really live, and your little, your little pitch there is a really lousy offer because I have to turn my back on all the wealth, the, the true wealth of the world, the true wealth that I found, and all you're saying is you're going to give me a few more minutes of what you call life. And it's like it doesn't work. I'm sorry. And so that's why they choose. It's a choice. Yes. yes. So then there's this lesson, though, for the church in the West, the free church. And that's where I won't give away the, uh, the punchline. But that's the whisper. There's a whisper these guys are telling us. And it took me so long to see it. I watch and watch. But anyway, so one of these stories was Shabazz. Shabazz was my friend from Pakistan. And uh, <clears throat> my predecessor met him first and got him... Uh, introduced to Washington, D.C., and we're taking him to senators and congressmen, which helped him back home and raise his profile. Um, so he would let the guys downtown know what was going on. Um, so I, you know, I remember being in Pakistan with him, and, and I've been to so many countries. I've been to, I think, 65 countries or more. I don't know what it is, but um, Pakistan was the, one of the few places I've ever felt afraid, and that's what the Christians live with under there. You know, there, and that's, that's Islam's tool. It's fear. It's just like mm-hmm. the devil's. The devil's tool. It's fear. As the first time, I really felt afraid. And I remember traveling with Shabazz, and he had been telling me, you know, it's like it's not safe being here. And we were going down the road, and uh, I'm jet lagged, and we're in a, a, a car, and the windows are down. And I'm just kind of wandering with my eyes and thinking about how vulnerable you really are in this place. And then I, I see about eight feet, ten feet in front of us, there's a van, and he's next to us. And the passenger is leaning out. Now, he's dressed as a radical. And he's leaning out, and he is glaring at me, and he is sending a very clear message with his eyes that you do not belong here, and if I had my way, I would do whatever I wanted with you, and you'd be dead. And uh, I just pretended not to see, and I turned my head away, and my buddy Shabazz is like, Jeff, Jeff, look, look. I'm like, I see him. <laughs> and we turned away, so we split. Uh, we went different directions with the car. I was like, oh, my gosh. There was a little lesson of what people live with here. And... Um, but so the years went by, and again, every time I saw him, this would come up, and I, you know, we knew he was going to die, and you could see the danger was ratcheting up because he took a government position, so he was the representative for all the Christians in Pakistan uh, politically, and um, <clears throat> was he a pastor? He was not a pastor. No, he was a political figure. He was a uh, uh, head of a min- uh, um, uh, what would you call him here? He was he was the head of uh, you know he was the head. I'm trying to think of the official title, but. Uh, appointed by the government as the representative for all the political minorities, okay. for the religious minorities, sorry. And so that means you're going to die. If you're standing up for Christians and you're effective, you're going to die. And so, you know, towards the end, he started distancing himself from from friends and loved ones and would go to restaurants alone because he knew he was going to be gunned down. And so one day he came out of his house, and that's exactly what happened to him. He was gunned down. Um, so... Um, but there's, there's so many of these guys. There was a, another brother, and I didn't know this brother, but I'll tell you his story. So he was in Nigeria. He was a pastor, and he uh, was uh, in the north, and the radicals were taking over. Boko Haram was taking more and more territory, and so he, he disbanded the church. He said, we're going to go south. And uh, so they went south, but he went back for an elderly sister in his church to make sure she got out, and he was captured. And we know what happened to him because there was a whole bunch of witnesses because they rounded up the Christians. And in a big circle, um, they said, now, uh, let's separate who are the Christians and who are the non-Christians so they get just the Christians. 
and they say, hey, you Christians, we have a wonderful deal for you today. You, Some of you are going to live today, whoever wants to come to Islam. So um, this pastor, his response was to start praising and singing hymns. And so I'm going to give you one guess. Who do you think they singled out first to deal with? It was Pastor Oji. So they bring Pastor Oji into the circle, and they um, they say, now, Pastor, uh, you're a pastor, right? Yeah, okay. Well, same deal. You're going to die today in a few minutes if you don't turn to Jesus. And he's singing, and they and the uh, assassin raises his machete above his head. He says, now, one more chance. And Pastor Oji looked to his neighbors and his friends, and he said, tell my family I died well. And the machete came down. Wow. And again, see, he had the chance to live. And he said, I can't. It's a lousy deal you've got for me. I can't turn my back on the only thing that I've ever found that is real life. You know, it's the answer. And that's where uh, they camp. And there's this transaction that happened long before in their heart Mm -hmm. where all this was traded away. The world was traded away. And Jesus became the true treasure in their heart. Um, So, some little stories. Jeff, how can they get your book? Uh, the book is, uh, it's actually, we have a booklet, which is the smaller version. Uh, but if you go to persecution.org, it'll be on one of the top sliders there. It'll be on the top of the website. You'll see it. And if not, look for the phone number on the website, and you can call in and get a free copy. What is the title? It's The Last Words of the Martyrs. Last Words of the Martyrs. Last Words of the Martyrs. And the book is actually just coming out. So we're just sending it off to the publisher. But right now, they can get the booklet form of it. So. So we're, I have a question. Before you, before you ask, we're in, we're, we are talking with Jeff King. He's the president of International Christian Concern. You have a question for Jeff. Yes. My question is, how can Christians living in America who aren't facing that kind of persecution come to that place where they have made that decision? As you said, there's that decision to trade yeah. over everything of the world, yes. give up all our idols, and totally sell out to Jesus. Yeah. So how can our listeners do that when they're living without persecution? Yeah. <clears throat> That's the whole subject matter of the book, really. Because mm-hmm. on the surface, it's about the martyrs, but it's really about uh, what needs to happen in our hearts. And, you know, it's funny because I finished the book and um, I've shared it with different people. And anybody with a practical mindset will ask that question, well, what do I do? And we're Westerners, you know. It's like, I need a 10-step program. <laughs> Or I need a curriculum, and it's not so easy because what's what's being asked, of course, of the Lord of us is a radical heart change, which is what you're getting at. And, you know, unfortunately, I would say, you know, the times we grow, now why do the persecuted grow? It's, it's not complicated. It's because they're facing deep pain and deep struggle and loss. And um, so that's, unfortunately, usually what's the, it's the same answer with us. The Lord's doing this. Now, our pain doesn't come from persecution. Our pain doesn't come from torture and imprisonment. But everyone's got it from death of loved ones to divorce to whatever. It's out there, financial struggles and disasters and, you know, the, the sickness or death of your children. That's all there. Yes. And there's a message in there, though. That's, you know, that's just part of life. But the Lord's always working and he's trying, he's trying to wake you up over time. It's a path we go on. And this path, I would say, is that, you know, most of the time, in America, kind of like the best you'll hope for, you know, what you'll see in church is where Jesus becomes king. And that's what you think about. It. You come to the Lord, you know, through, uh, there's a point of salvation. The Lord is wooing you, and uh, he adopts you. And there's this sanctif- sanctification stage you go through. Now, that really lasts our whole life, but there's a real tight period when you get, when you come to Christ, where he's trying to clean up your life, and you're trying to clean up your life and look more Christian. 
But along there, you become a deeper follower. Some people become deeper followers, and they'll get to the point where they're, you know, they're going to church on a regular basis, and they're reading their Bible on their own, and they're studying the Lord, and and that's when you're getting, and you're trying to order your life around Christ, and that's where Christ is your king, is what I'd say. And I would say most of the time in the West, that's what's taught as as the highest point of Christianity. I'd say that's not it at all. What did Jesus call us to? He said. Um, <clears throat> you know, there was a man that found a treasure in a field, and in his great joy, he went and sold all that he had yes. so he could have that field. You know? And what did he say um, to the rich young ruler? Jesus went right to what the problem was. The money wasn't the problem. The money was his idol, his where he was getting his strength and his where his treasure was. And he says to the rich young ruler, you know, when the guy says, what do I do? I want to find eternal life. He says, it's real simple. He says, go get rid of your treasure. Make me your treasure. And that's where he walked away sad because he's like, no, this is my treasure and I can't let go of it. And so, unfortunately, this is what the role of pain is in our lives and struggle. But this is what he's doing. There's a point to it. He doesn't cause it. He allows it. It's going to happen in our life. But he's always trying to get you to let go of the world and to to make him your true treasure. So what you're saying is that to have to make Christ our king isn't the highest attainment of the Christian yes. life, but it's the beginning of the Christian life. Well, I, you're probably pretty far along if, if Christ is your king, if you're living that way. That's a great place to be, but it's not the end point. It's not. There's a, a higher calling that he wants. And, you know, in the end, he, he wants all of you. And a lot of times I think we want a one-time savior. We want to get saved, and then we think we're cleaned up, and we get on our way. And then we have God on call for when we get into trouble. I think that's a lot of times how we like to live as human beings. And that's just not the way. He wants all. He says, what, is, you know, what does he want? He wants you to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's another way to say he wants to be the treasure in your life. And that's where he's trying to get you to make that. First of all, if you get to king, that's a great spot to be. But there's more. That's the only thing I tell the faithful Christian out there. There's more. And it's where he becomes your treasure. And it's a hard thing. It's a very hard thing. If you haven't been through it, if it hasn't happened to you, it's very hard to, to, to get what, you know, what that means. Um, but when you've, been, when you've done it, when you've made that transaction in your heart, it's unmistakable. So, Jeff, there's a, a way of teaching in the American mm-hmm. church. John Wesley said, if, if the Christians don't look like they need to look, it's because they're being taught wrong theology. Mm-hmm. I think part of the wrong theology is gradualism, mm. where we slowly think we're going to grow yes. into conversion, yes. and then we're going to spend the rest of our lives being sanctified, yeah. and then we get the big reward. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Yeah. What I've come to understand is that conversion is instantaneous. Mm-hmm. It's that cutting off. Mm-hmm. It's making that decision. Mm-hmm. It's by faith. It's not by works. Mm. But then sanctification, according to John Wesley, and I think he's right on, mm. is not gradualism either. Mm-hmm. It is making that final decision for that treasure in the field. Mm. And I'm sold out now to Jesus. Yeah. Well, that's just cleared out all of the yeah. underbrush. Yeah. Now I'm free to live for Jesus. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And persecution clears out all of that stuff it sure does because it forces you to make that decision that's right or leave or leave you fold Mm -hmm. say this is too high cost and i and i think in in the american church we've got to start preaching revival yeah that is not gradualism that's right but it has to be make the decision and live it yeah am i 
I, I think I'd agree with you, but I think that would cause a lot of offense, right? And well, Jesus said he was a, an offense. Absolutely. He's a stumbling block. He's yeah. a stumbling block. He's supposed to be. So why do we turn him into, why do we try to make him palatable all the time, you know? <laughs> yes. You know? And, and relevant. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't want the scriptures to be made relevant to the world. I want the yeah. world to be made relevant to scripture. Yeah, it's evergreen. That message is evergreen, but it's, he wants everything. And, yes. you know, I, I think I understand the, the heart behind the seeker movement. I think there's a lot of good that's come from it, but a lot of times we're, you know, we're trying to be palatable. We're trying to uh, coddle people, and it's like we're desperately sick, and that's the problem, I folks. think we're vaccinating people against Ooh, Jesus. Gosh, that might be the truth. That but I want to ask truth. you another question. Yeah. How in the world did you get <laughs> into persecution? Yeah. Um, I ramble on so much. I'm trying to think which... <laughs> I mean, you had to be called. <laughs> I was. You had to I have was. some divine revelation. I was. This is not a job that one no. would go out and apply for <laughs> as a worldly-hearted person. That's right. I mean, you weren't looking for some ambitious career. That's right. Well, and I, and I didn't grow up in a Christian home, too. So I had, you know, first I got radically saved, and then I got called into ministry. I was out making money in the financial world, and I got called into ministry, and... And I always say my epiphany came when one month I made as probably two or three times what other guys were my age were making in a year. I made it in a month, and I was like, I just don't care. <laughs> that, wow. You know, that was that was my wake-up call in the ministry. But, you know, I was with Campus Crusade for Christ, or crew now, and uh, I was with them for 11 years. And again, God called me specifically there. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, in that organization, you have to go out and raise your own financial support. And uh, which was kind of always a stumbling block. And the Lord said to me, he said, don't worry, I'm going to take care of this. And he did. It was always effortless. It was crazy until the last two or three years. In the last two or three years, my financial support just fell apart and I could not do anything to fix it. And uh, I mean, some of those years I was making $16,000, you know, I was like, I'm an adult man. And I'm like, this is getting wearisome, you know, and, and tiring. And I'm like, what the heck? And I couldn't fix it, so that's when I finally knew. And that's when he dries up the finances. That's when he's usually moving you on. You'd see that with people. And I finally woke up. I said, okay, he's moving me, or I'm going to go back to secular work. And I didn't want to go back to secular work. And um, so I was kind of stubborn. I'm like, Lord, I'm not moving until you tell me what to do. And I just sit and pray and sit and pray. And I tend to be pretty proactive. But, and um, so I just did that. And then I was out in California for meetings with – I was with the Jesus family, so we had meetings out there. And I was in um, uh, a retreat center, and I, I was sleeping there, and during the night I had this dream. And in this dream, I was talking to this imaginary businessman. I call him Bill, so I have this dream, and I'm talking to Bill on the phone, and I decide to go by his office. So I hang up, I go by his office, I pull up in the car, and all his workers are standing outside. Now, they're standing outside a home that's like this prototypical 1940s Silver Spring home, which is where I come from. I come from Silver Spring, Maryland. And uh, um, so the workers are all out there. I'm like, hey, where's Bill? And they're like, Bill's gone. I'm like, well, where is he? They, no, no, he's gone, gone. He's dead. I say, he's not dead. I was just talking to him, you know. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Going back and forth in the dream. And they get agitated in the dream, and they say, I'm telling you, he's dead. He dropped dead. We're really scared. Do you want to run the business? And I'm like, I don't know. So that was the dream. It's no weirder than all dreams are weird. That was a weird one, but so be it. So I wake up, and I check my cell phone, and a supporter, a financial supporter, of mine had called uh, a few hours earlier. I'm West Coast. She's East Coast. She's never called me before, so I'm a little curious. 
So I call her back and she says, hey, listen, um, my husband and I are connected with this organization and their founder just dropped dead and all I can think is you're the guy that's supposed to run this thing. Are you interested? Wow. <laughs> so that's incredible. I just had this underwhelmed, I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> because, you know, we pray a lot about where we're supposed to go and how often do you get a clear answer. It's, it's pretty rare when you get a clear answer. Yes. You know, you treasure those times when you do, but I was like, I always jokingly say, you know, I have the gift of spiritual discernment because I was able to put those things together and figure out the Lord wanted me to, to go towards ICC. <laughs> so then I called, it was interesting because I called um, the head of the board and, uh, uh, you know, I can picture, I, I could only hear his voice, but I could picture him, he's an attorney. And you could see him sitting at his desk. You know, I couldn't see him, but he's sitting at his desk. And yeah, yeah, who are you? What? Yeah, I'm like, well, I heard you had this opening. I want to kind of throw my hat in the ring. Uh, tell me what you've done. Oh, 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 oh! I'm interested. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, it came up, and long story short, they hired me. And so, that was about 15 years ago. So, I had another question. Unless yeah. you wanted to ask a question mm-hmm. on that. So, you mentioned that you've traveled to 65 countries or yeah. so. I've often felt that I would love to go visit the churches around yeah. the world so that I could get some idea of yeah. what is the state of the church. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about that based yeah. on your experience? Well, I'd say the state of the church around the world is a lot like the state of the church as here. You know, you find everything. So there's anointed churches here, there's powerful churches, there's faithful, and then there's you know, ones that are trying and stumbling. and um, <clears throat> So it's the same. Um, and yet in some of these places, the country, that church really stands out. I mentioned a couple of them. There's China, um, there's Cuba, um, just different places where it's like I said, in some of these places, I'll, you know, I'll go to some, I think of these little ramshackle houses in Cuba, the house churches, and go in there, and they've been praying for hours before I got there down these ramshackle little pews. And that just that power and same in China, just that power. You walk through the door, and it's like, oh my gosh, he's here, you know. And it makes you, <laughs> it makes you uh, fall down, and tear up, and it's just the presence of God that's so powerful. Just what we need. Um, so you know, early on, I I went to uh, China, and I asked my handler. I said, I want to get with some. I want I want two things. I want to meet with uh, a pastor of a larger movement. And I want to meet with some pastors that have been in prison for long, real prison terms. And so the first guy they introduced me to was uh, they come and we have a meeting in my hotel room and it's all kind of hush-hush and secret. And he comes with two handlers and an interpreter and, and sitting down one bed to the other talking to the guy. And I'm saying, now, how, how many followers do you have in your movement? And this is very common in China. And they would talk in Chinese back and forth. They'd say, a million. I said, oh, well, that's a translation problem, right? So I said, no, no, I'm asking how many followers, you know, in your in your church. Da, 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 back and forth, back and forth. A million. <laughs> I was like, oh, my wow. gosh. It's so different in China. The scale of everything is so huge. So, but uh, that separate story where I met with these pastors who had been in prison, I think the, the shortest prison term was 10 years. The longest was in the 20s. And these people were so, these are giants of the faith. No one will ever know their name, you know. Simple. Uh, pastor has no real education, but they have uh, a degree on the wall that n- that no hardly anybody can touch, and that's the the faithful service through prison terms and through uh, torture and imprisonment and beatings, and it really shaped them. And uh, I sat there and I was like, I'll treasure this for the rest of my life. But I sat there with these guys, and I would say, guys, it was it was men and women, 
and I was asking these questions, and I say, tell me, tell me about persecution. And they say, well, persecution is a gift. It's nothing we would, we would ever choose, but it's a gift because it keeps the church pure. Wow. You know, it's just that dynamic we talked about with Cuba. It keeps the church pure and because uh, it washes out everybody that's, you know, not serious and kind of to your point. And um, so I, I said, now, um, what would the church be like without persecution? And they said, well, the church would be a mile wide and an inch deep. <laughs> and you would have famous people going from church to church who would talk but who had no real understanding of they don't, they don't really know God well. They don't know how he works. And there's no anointing, no power in their message. I'm looking at him, and I said, and this is no joke, I said, do you know the church in the United States? And I, you know, because um, I thought they were trying to school me. You know, I thought that they knew where we were as a country, as a church, and I thought they were trying to school me. And these are just simple rural pastors. I'm like, no, we don't know anything about America. Ah. And um, my, the final question was, um, I said, what, what's your biggest worry about the church in China? And they say, our biggest worry is that, you know, the younger pastors have not been hunted and imprisoned and tortured like us. And they're falling in love with money and wow. achievement. And they said, that's our biggest worry. And it's like, my gosh. So it's, it's these messages that keep coming back to me, you know, this whisper that I kept hearing in, over the years. That's what I was describing in the book. And this whisper from the martyrs and the persecutors, what they're telling us. So, yeah. Talk about how you see revival and its need in America. Mm. Well, I'd start with... Um, my heart and my need for revival personally, you know, each of us, that's where we need to start, I think, right? And it's like our hearts, we just all have to come to the conclusion that we're desperately sick. You know, we're broken. And we don't need a one-time Savior. We don't need to get saved and then we're on our way. We get saved and our eternity is secured, but we're still a mess. And the only hope we have every day uh, is Jesus. And yet we are so self-reliant, you know? And uh, Witness Lee, who was a follower of Watchman Nee, spoke to this. And uh, he said, you know, our main problem is that we're impregnable. We're too whole. Or we would say maybe self-reliant. And so the need of, of any of us as Christians is that um, we're our own worst enemy. And we think we need a little bit of God. And what's held up in the world? Self-reliant, self-reliance, especially in America, Yes. To be a hard charger and go out there and make your way and to do pull up by your bootstraps and you make it happen. And then, Lord help you, if you need a little bit of help from God along the way, that's a fine thing, right? That's not it at all. Oh, my gosh, that's the sickness right there. But that's how we're wired. And probably, probably men more than women. You know, women are more geared towards relationship. But as men, we're more independent. We, you know, we want to make it and do it on our own. And that's just a, a drastic problem. So that's the body of Christ anywhere around the world. That's human beings. Now, it's a little different culture to culture. There's different nuances, but that's the problem. That's us. So we don't realize our sickness. You know, the Lord, what do we say? We think we're rich in America. If you're here, you're rich. Yes. And now if you're rich as an American, then you're insanely rich by world standards. But if you're here, you're rich. And we think, and, and the problem is, first of all, we don't know we're rich in world standards, but secondly, we don't realize we're desperately poor. 
What does the Lord say? He says, you're not rich. You know, you're dressed in rags. You need a bath. Um, (laughs) You know, we're so desperately ill, and yet we're so puffed up and proud. So this is our problem as human beings. It's not America. It's just human beings. And so we desperately need Jesus, and that's the church, too. So it's like you said, I think we spend too much time trying to make, oh my gosh, maybe we could just win some of these poor pagans to Jesus if we just make them palatable enough and just give them just a little bit. It's like, that's not it at all. We're desperately sick. That's the message that needs to go out. And that's up to the church, and that's to America. You know, the materialism, everything. Look at our culture. We're falling apart. Yes. You know, the, the killings, everything, the random evil that's been released in our culture as we've turned away from God. And so that's just the clue that, you know, something is desperately wrong and as God's presence is not here. And we need to fall on our feet, all of us. And we need to say, first of myself, I desperately need Jesus. I just have to have more of him. And uh, I can't do this on my own. That's not weakness. That's just reality. And that's strength. So that's the call to revival. It's each Christian. We need that. So there's no condemnation on any particular movement or church. It's just all of this. We just, you know, we just all have to have more, and we need to cry out to the Lord to bring, to bring the churches on fire and to bring revival back. Question? No, I'm just thinking about, we, you're right that we need to really depend on Jesus, mm. and that's very powerful. Mm. We have a couple minutes left. Yeah. Uh, We're talking with Jeff King. He's the president of International Christian Concern. Uh, Jeff, what do you want to say to the people? Hmm. What's your heart for them? Well, I I think we've been talking a lot about it. As we talked before the program, you know, sometimes it's funny that I look back at my career and I think God's got me in persecution. And, you know, I think I came this way because... You know, my, my real heart is for evangelism. My number one thing is evangelism revival. That's always what's beating in my heart. And it's not like I've made it. You can hear what I'm talking about these things. It's just like we're all desperately sick. We need Jesus, right? Yes. And, um, and yet so, but those things are always beating. But I would say the persecuted church are, they have an essential place in the heart of the Western church. And that's a witness to us and an example to us because what you see is, is great devotion at great cost. And, you know, we have, we have an obligation to take care of these guys and to help them. And why is that? I would say it's this. Um, you know, Mother Teresa, now I'm not a Catholic, but Mother Teresa was out there in Calcutta, and she would take the people who were dying on the streets and bring them in and bathe them and uh, stroke their hair and clean them just before a couple of days before they die. And, um, you know, she became a world-famous figure. And so women from all over the world flocked to her ministry and got involved in this work. And this work is not glorious when you're down there in the trenches. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking about people who are dying, covered in their own filth. There's nothing left. And they're dying and right in front of you. And they said to her, it's like, how do you do this and why? And she said, uh, and I would have a little difference in her theology, but here's what she said. She said, you know, each person that I bathe, I bathe the body of Jesus. Each person I touch and caress, that's the body of Jesus. So I said, that is, that theology is correct when you're talking about the persecuted church, your brother and sister out there. Now, the Lord said we're one body. What does that mean? And you think about it. His spirit is inside people all over the world. So when they're imprisoned and raped and tortured and their children are taken from them, he feels that nothing is hidden from him. 
Mm-hmm. Nothing's hidden from him. He feels it. He sees it. So when we go out there, that's why we do persecution ministry, because it's the body of Jesus. We are bandaging it. We're healing it. We're taking. We're we're doing whatever we can to move move them to a better life. Whether that's you know healing their broken bones, their bodies, or taking those families when the pastor father has been murdered and moving them on, as well as as building that church on the front lines. But that's what I'd say is like get involved because they have um, such a message of revival for us personally. And so, but the first thing you have to do is become aware. So go to persecution.org or one of the other persecution sites and follow it and pick up our magazine. It's free. And you'll see that it's not your typical nonprofit magazine. It's really about yes. you're teaching people. We're trying to get them to understand persecution, what's going on, and, and the spiritual lessons uh, that come from them. So that would be my message. Any last word, Alexandra? Uh, thank you very much. I'm very grateful for this time. I would definitely recommend for the listeners that you subscribe to the newsletter. It is free. It's an excellent publication. Uh, that's at persecution.org. And you can listen to this message again at nationalprayerchapel.com. So we've been speaking with Jeff King. Jeff, I see your heart, and I'm sure it's come over the air. Hmm. A cry for men and women to follow Jesus. Yeah. And to lay it all down. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's been a blessing to be with you guys. I know fellow travelers when I see them. <laughs> Amen. And I urge you, as you've listened, go to persecution.org. Mm. Contribute financially. If you want to have your money, go directly, directly to the brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. That's where you need to give. And I urge you to go and do that as the Holy Spirit prompts you. Thank you, brother. Um. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel, and we invite you to go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and also to revivalnow.church, revivalnow.church. I want to remind you that Monday night we will hold another revival meeting at the All Saints Anglican Church. It's located at 14851 Gideon Drive in Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. And Monday night, we're going to be talking about how do you lay your life down? How do you leave your sin? And how are you to be found in Jesus? You can't be found in Jesus and in sin at the same time. His blood washes and cleanses. So God bless you. We love you. And we'll talk to you again soon. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.